As we get started today, um, starting a new series about Christmas, and um, it kind of takes a little bit of work before we get into the message today. So um, have you ever met somebody who didn't have any empathy? Don't look around, don't nudge your neighbor, okay? Eyes up here. Have you ever met anybody that j- just didn't have any empathy? They just, they just lacked it, you know, and, and we use terms like they lacked empathy as if they should have had it, but there's like a gap there. There's a hole, like they, they're missing something that they, they should have. And, and if you've been around those people, you don't like those people, right? Because they kind of seem selfish. They don't mean to, right? They don't, they don't mean to seem selfish, but when somebody lacks empathy, it's almost like um, they just kind of turn it on themselves. You know, they kind of, you know, you describe an issue that you got and then somehow they manage to make it about themselves. It's not that they don't and can't connect with your issue. It's that they just naturally don't think that way because they lack empathy. And just so we're all clear, uh, empathy is one of the most important emotions a human can have. And so we're all functioning under the same definition. Empathy is the ability to identify with or understand another's situations or feelings. Again, don't look around, but you've met these people who lack empathy, and you just simply can't connect with them. You struggle connecting with them because they only kind of worry about themselves, and they don't mean to be, right? It's not something that they mean to do. It's just maybe because of one thing or another in their childhood. Maybe they weren't, they weren't raised with empathy, but it's so, so important and fundamental to how we are wired, And I'll get into more of that in just a moment. So we're starting a brand new series titled The Gift, where we are exploring the three gifts that Jesus was given by by the Magi or the wise men. Now, a real quick thing. Uh, So um, let's let's do some Bible trivia. Who's ready for some Bible trivia? You guys remember that from years ago, back when they used to do that? I never did because I didn't go to church as a kid. So anyway, (laughs) Bible trivia. How many wise men were there at the nativity scene? Incorrect. We don't know how many there were. We don't know. We have no idea how many wise men there were. The reason that we think there were three and the reason why everybody ripped off three, everybody was like, three, and said it with confidence. I could have said, who survived the flood? Everybody would have yelled, Noah. You got, everybody yells three wise men right away, right? Except we don't know that. In fact, what we know is there were three gifts. So because there were three gifts, everybody thinks, oh, there were three wise men or three magi is how they're described. Except in this story, these magi were probably something equipped to, or similar to a rulers or authorities in different areas of that world. So they were probably like representatives of a kingdom, or maybe they even had their own kingdom that they ruled. They were influential, powerful men, magi who decided to go and follow and worship Jesus. And when that happened, royalty doesn't go anywhere alone. Royalty goes with somebody else. So they certainly probably had more than three. They probably had somewhere to 12 or maybe even 15, maybe even more than that that went to see Jesus. And at your nativity scene at home, how old's baby Jesus? He's like a little baby, right? Little baby Jesus. Except the Magi probably came when Jesus was a two-year-old. Who's got two-year-olds in the room? Anybody? God bless you. We will pray for you. Who's got, who's got three-year-olds in the room? Any three-year-olds in the room? God bless you. We're going to pray for you, right? You probably are so tired. I'm so happy you made it here. You didn't get any sleep last night, right? That is, that's probably the age of the child of Jesus that they, they went to. 
So in the nativity scene, and we all get like, you know, like some of you guys are like, don't mess with my nativity scene, Brandon. Like I have set that thing out and it looks great and you better not say anything about it. I'm not, I'm just saying maybe for the historicity of it, maybe it's not quite as accurate, but that's all I'm going to say. You keep your baby Jesus in the manger with the wise men. I don't care. Okay. But that know that that probably was not exactly how it happened. So our theme verse for this series or kind of the verse we're grounding it in. It's going to be Matthew chapter two, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And it says this, when they, talking about the wise men, the magi, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Powerful, influential men bowed down and worshiped this child because they recognized who he was. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we're going to spend the next three weeks exploring each one of these gifts and why it's important and significant and can actually connect to and relate to us and how they actually symbolize a characteristic of Jesus and what that means for us and what we should do with it. Now, I don't know about you guys. I've had a few kids. I have not had any kids. My wife has had all the kids. I am just there changing diapers when the, afterwards. So that people brought us gifts when we had kids. Nobody brought us frankincense, gold, we would have taken that, or myrrh, (laughs) right? Nobody brought us any of those gifts. So we hear those gifts and we think those are so impractical. Those don't make any sense. I want blankets. I want binkies. I want diapers. I want baby wipes, right? Because those things are expensive. Come on, somebody. Those things are expensive, right? And it feels to us like this is such an impractical gift. But the truth is these gifts serve both a physical and a spiritual purpose. And we're going to find a little bit more out about that. Frankincense is the one we're going to explore today. It was a very expensive gift. So that's part of the reason we know these magi had a lot of money and they were very influential because they were able to bring it. And not only did they bring it, they brought it with gold and they brought it with myrrh. Okay, I'm not rolling around with any of that stuff and none of you guys probably are either. And what is interesting is frankincense actually has antiseptic, diuretic, digestive support, and even sedative effects for people. It was used physically, it was used to help treat sicknesses and wounds in the ancient world. And in today, it even is some today as well, that it's kind of part of the culture back then. That's what they do. So it's a practical gift. We think, oh, it's just so impractical. It's not. It actually is very, very practical. You can get frankincense in a couple different forms. You've got, frankincense is a, uh, it's a tree sap that's been hardened, okay? Every time I see one of these, I think of the, uh, I think I'm going to find a bug, like, you know, Jurassic Park with the mosquito in the middle. I love that movie, so I'm just hoping that there's one in there, and I'll open my own Jurassic Park one day. Anyway, <laughs> that's not related to church. Frankincense. Frankincense, it comes in, and it's these, these, it normally comes like this, and what you could do is you could put it in a, a hot pot warmer, and you would melt it down, and you could create the scent Um, So it's a scent that they would use also. Um, It's an essential oil, so it doesn't just come in only this form, but it will come, and some of my my essential oil friends, where where, where are you guys at? You know what's up? You know the essential oil people? They come in this this form, okay? I've never put this in like an oil diffuser. I don't know if it smells good. The frankincense uh, amber smells decent, but I don't know if it would smell good in one of those. But they would use it for all sorts of different things, primarily treating sickness and treating wounds. So they would melt it down and they would use it in that sense. And it's also, like I said, a spiritual gift as well. 
It points to something about Jesus. Frankincense points to Jesus being the high priest because the priests would burn the frankincense in the temple when they would offer prayers to the Lord and as they would go through the sacrifice for the people. So they would burn the frankincense. And so when they bring that to Jesus, scholars believe that it symbolized Jesus as the high priest. Now, for many of us, if you didn't go to a Catholic, if you don't have a Catholic background or a Greek Orthodox background, the idea of priest is very foreign to you. You hear priest and you go, I don't know what that means. And you don't know what it means because you don't call me priest. You call me Brandon, right? I'm not priest, I'm Brandon. But in truth, the priest and the pastor are kind of the same thing in the, in the, different, the different types of Christianity in the world. And uh, what you need to know is this actually has ancient roots and why it's so significant. It has ancient roots. So the priest in the ancient world in the Hebrew culture had two main rules to, or two main roles that they had to fulfill. The first was they prayed prayers on behalf of the people to God. Okay, so they prayed prayers on behalf of people to God because people just didn't know how to pray. Like it was one of those things where they kind of kept it like, look, you guys can't pray to God. It's okay, you don't understand. Stay back here. The priests will go and pray. And then there was the sacrifices. You guys remember in the law, we talk about like 613 different laws. And then like in Leviticus and that whole section, there's a whole lot that talks about different sacrifices. That's a whole lot to learn. That's a whole lot to remember. So people aren't remembering that. They don't care at all. They're just going to go to the temple and talk to the priest. The priest would then go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for sin. Now, this is important to us but I've got to get there and explain why. So this word sin, we don't like it in our culture, do we? In fact, you probably, I probably said it and you were like, I don't, I don't actually don't like that you're talking about this. I don't really want to think about it that way. In fact, we prefer if we had our option, we would use words like mistake or accident. I mean, isn't it true that's, that's what we say? We say, you know what, I made a mistake and I said that to her. You know, me and my wife were fighting the other night, and, you know, it was an accident that I, I called her that name. It was an accident that I said that, right? It, you know, I was uh, having this argument, or I was talking about this person at work, and, and I don't like to identify, you know, it wasn't gossiping, right, because that's a sin. So I didn't, I, I just accidentally spoke about them when they weren't around, right? It's not a sin. We mistake, we say, well, I've, I've got, I've made a mistake, or, you know, hey, it was, a, uh, it was an accident. But there's an issue with thinking that way. We certainly don't like the idea that we sinned against them or sinned against God. That is far too personal, and we don't like to think about that, right? We don't want to think about, ooh, I sinned against God. Like, can you imagine the next time you tell a lie at work, and then you sit back and think, I sinned against God? Mmm. Ew. Doesn't make you feel good. Ew. Right? You don't like it. But the truth is, we do. The truth is, it happens. I mean, every one of us can think of moments in which we've done that. And the problem with this line of thinking of avoiding calling something what it is, which is sin, right? When we avoid calling something that, we kind of create a situation. Because if you, ex if you can excuse it instead of own it, you'll never change it. So as it comes to sin, if we're just being real honest, I'm talking to the Jesus followers in the room. So if you're a Jesus follower, you should lean in. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then you can simply sit back and watch us squirm for a second, okay? Okay. We're going to be real uncomfortable for a second. That when we have sin in our life, so show of hands real quick. Who in here has sin in their life? Every hand in the house of the Lord should go up. Somebody say amen. amen. 
We all have sin. I'll have two hands up, right? Like we have, we all have sin. And the issue is, is when we can just, instead of saying I sinned, I just kind of mistaked or I accidented, right? It doesn't even make any sense when you say it. I mistaked and I accidented. No, you sinned. Oof. But when we do that, we create this, this situation where we can excuse it instead of deal with it. We can excuse it instead of identifying it. We can excuse it instead of own it. And then what you fail, what you fail to acknowledge and what you fail to pay attention to, what you fail to own, you can excuse. And you will never change. And you will never change it. And you'll never be able to overcome that sin in your life unless you address it, acknowledge it, and confront it as sin. So definition of what sin is real quick, because some of you are like, I don't even know what that word means. It's a super Christian word. I'm not sure. This is the way I define sin, okay? This makes it super easy. Actually, I didn't define this. Jesus defined it this way. So what is a sin? A sin is anything that gets in the way of your relationship with God. So anything that gets in your relationship with God, that's the first part of it. Anything that gets in your relationship with God. The second part of it is anything that hurts you or those around you. So if you say something, even if it doesn't necessarily hurt you, but it hurts somebody, you've sinned. That doesn't mean you don't tell the truth. That, does, that just means you tell the truth nicely. Come on, somebody. Y'all know those people, the truth people? I call them the truth, no grace, right? Extra truth, no grace. Hold the grace, right? But the whole point is that it's, we don't shy away from truth. We're just aware of our actions. We're aware of the way we treat people. And you go, Braden, where is that in the Bible? Well, there's a point when the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law and prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament for them hangs on these two commands, Jesus says. So therefore, anything that violates those two commands falls into that sin category, at which now that that's our definition of sin, who's a sinner in this room? Every single one of us. But that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because sin is separation from God. Now there's a barrier. There's something preventing me from getting to God, right? And then we are in the same spot that the rest of humanity was. We need a high priest, and that's what, the, that's what the Hebrews had. They had a high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice. Now, they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would burn the frankincense. That's why this would be is considered part of, what, uh, of Jesus' high priesthood calling because the, the, the priest would come out smelling like this because they would burn it as a representation of the prayers going to the Lord. He would sacrifice the animal, the animal, an unblemished animal had to be perfect. Sacrifice, take the blood, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, covering sin for, all pe for the people of Israel. And the animal died in place of the people for the sin. Some of us go, well, why is that? That's kind of weird. Why did the something have to die? Well, because I'm going to teach you a principle really quick. Um, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice because, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail next week about this, there had to be a sacrifice because where there is sin, there is death. Where there is sin, there is death. Just flat out. And maybe, maybe we sit and we feel uncomfortable. We don't like that, right? It was kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I like that either, Brandon, because I definitely sinned and I ain't dead yet. 
That's not what I mean. And let me give you an example. Um, you lied, and that marriage died, didn't it? You were greedy, and your reputation died, didn't it? You were selfish. You've seen people that were selfish, and you've watched those relationships and those things die. Maybe it doesn't happen right away. Maybe it doesn't happen instantaneously. But the truth is, and the nature of it all is, where there is sin, it does and eventually will lead to death. Something will die. Now, in a spiritual sense, this means that we needed a sacrifice. So the high priest would go in, offer the sacrifice, and boom, that covered the sins of Israel. Many of us sit back and go, okay, Brandon, that's the old covenant. You've explained that to us many different times, okay? That's the old covenant. What exactly are we under? We're under the new covenant, Brandon. I mean, you've heard, we talked about that a few different times, so that's kind of like what they did. But what happens now? What happens now? Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's, he's sitting around with all of his followers and he's, he actually explains this new covenant. Before, the old covenant was, I will if you will. That was kind of the viewpoint with God, like it was, a, it was a contract. It was like, God will do if Israel does. That's what happened. Jesus says, I'm take, getting rid of all of that. I'm gonna be both parties. I'm gonna take care of the entirety of the whole thing. And at the Last Supper, he takes the cup. At the, end of the, at the end of the supper, he takes the cup and he holds it up and he shows his disciples and he says, this is going to be different. This is going to be different. This cup is the new covenant. The new covenant. Not poured out in the blood of an animal on the mercy seat. No, 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 no. So much more valuable than that. This new covenant that we function under, it's going to be different. It's going to be poured out in my blood, Jesus said. And then he would go on to be that atoning sacrifice. And then he reminds us this blood is poured out for somebody fill in that blank. What's that word? You. For you. For you. For me. That the blood was poured out for all of us. The old was fulfilled and the new was set in place and set in motion, meaning we didn't need the temple system anymore. It had been fulfilled. It had fulfilled its purpose. Doesn't not important any longer spiritually because Jesus acted as that sacrifice, and he acts as a representative for us. So reflecting on this sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says something so profound about Jesus, and when we read through Hebrews, it's kind of hard to understand, but Hebrews was more than likely a sermon it was written and uh, probably more than likely a Jewish individual was teaching to a Jewish congregation. So as he was teaching, he was using words and imagery that they understood. So that's why you're going to get a lot of the Old Testament imagery in there. You're going to get a lot of the exclusive Jewish language in there. And as he's sitting there writing, reflecting on this sacrifice of Jesus, he has something specific to say. And he says this, therefore, talking about since Jesus has died, and since he's been elevated to the high priesthood, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Now, this next part's key. This next part's fundamental. This next part we breeze over, but this next verse 
is so fundamental. In fact, if you have your paper Bibles, I want you to highlight it. If you've got your digital Bible, I want you to highlight it and put a note. This is so important to understand Jesus is the high priest and to understand why he's the high priest and why it's important that we pay attention to that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We don't have somebody going into a room that's never met us, never don't know anything about us, not familiar with us, that's never been through what we've been through, not experienced what we've experienced, and they go in and offer a sacrifice. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 Jesus is not that. Jesus is not some priest in another town or another village or another city that goes into the temple and offers sacrifices on your behalf, even though you've never met him. Jesus is the high priest who's both the high priest and the sacrifice. He is a representative for us to the Father. And we can take heart in the fact that he has been where we have been before. The author continues, he says, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, maybe your version of Jesus is not a version of Jesus that's very empathetic. Maybe your version of Jesus is a version of Jesus where he's kind of pointing fingers, getting you in trouble all the time. You can't, you shouldn't, you ought not to, blah, 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 right? Maybe that's the version of Jesus you grew up with. If that's the version of Jesus, then that doesn't quite jive with what we see in the New Testament. It doesn't quite jive with what we see here in Hebrews. Instead of Jesus kind of pointing the fingers, it seems to be more of a Jesus placing his hand on his shoulder saying, I know. I've been through that too. I've been through that too. That really hurt when she did that, didn't it? That really hurt when they spoke about you that way, didn't it? I mean, that, that really hurt when this happened. And for many of us, we feel like that Jesus, we can't empathize, or Jesus doesn't empathize with us at all. But again, the truth is, he's been there. He's experienced it. You go, oh, my situation is so special. I am a special snowflake, and my, my situation is so different. Nobody's experienced it, just me. Just me. I'm the only one that's experienced it before. That's probably not accurate. Because Jesus is, so just a few things that Jesus has felt. If you, if you feel stressed in this moment, lucky for you, Jesus felt stressed. You're like, and Jesus didn't feel stressed. He was so stressed out in the garden, he was sweating blood. That's how stressed out he was. So if you're stressed out on how you're going to get the kids to practice on Tuesdays, Jesus been there. Not the same, but he's been there, right? He's experienced stress. And you go, oh, man, come on, man. I, Christmas is so hard for me because, you know, mom's not here, dad's not here. And I mean, Christmas is just really, really hard. Well, they believe that prior to Jesus' ministry that his earthly father, Joseph, died prior to his earthly ministry. So he knows what that's like. When you sit back and you go, oh, I mean, come on, I've lost a friend. I mean, I should never have to lose a friend. No, I understand. But Jesus lost his friend, John the Baptist and his cousin. He lost family. He experienced loss, maybe not in the exact same way that you have, but the experience of loss is something that he's familiar with. He lived in poverty. He experienced the things that we have experienced. And the amazing thing is, is that he did not sin. And he didn't do that for his own accord. He did that for you. 
He did that for me. So that when the time came, his blood could cover the entirety of our sin, both past, present, and future. He was tempted over and over again by the devil, wanting him to use his power and authority for earthly gain. His friends betrayed him. And then they rejected him. Not only did Judas betray him with a kiss, but then he rejected Then Peter, some of the other disciples, no, 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 I don't know who Jesus is. No, 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 I don't, I don't know who, who he is. He's experienced loss. And worst of all, he felt abandoned and deserted by God. And you go, Brandon, Jesus never felt abandoned and deserted by God. My father, my father, why have you forsaken? He says that on the cross. God didn't abandon him, but he felt that. He felt that way. So what you're going through, whatever it is, he has felt that before. He has experienced a version of that before. He doesn't sit in heaven looking as the high priest, pointing fingers, saying, you feel this and you did this and you sinned over here and you had that problem and you had this problem and you had that problem. He's not in heaven doing that. He's not in heaven doing that at all. He's in heaven as our high priest. And his sacrifice covers the myriad of sin that we have. And we all raised our hand earlier that we got it. And we need help. And we need somebody to get us there. So since all that is true, the author says this next, and this next part's the most powerful part. And this is the part I want you to leave with. He says, let us, up then, let us then approach God's throne. Let us then approach God's throne of grace. Some of us experience this and we read this and we think it says, let us approach God's throne of wrath. That's the version of God we were given. But it says, let us approach God's throne of grace. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Your high priest has been where you've been. He's experienced the things you've experienced and he offers a way for you to connect with your heavenly father. He offers a path for you to be able to approach the throne of grace and in confidence because you are covered by the blood of Jesus in confidence because your sins have been wiped clean. And you don't have to do this life alone. That you don't have to exist without being connected to your heavenly father. In fact, he loves you so much. He built the bridge. Jesus built the bridge so that you could be connected to him. He says it's a throne of mercy, not of wrath. Not of, not of judgment, not of all the other things that we think when we think of the throne of God. It says a throne of mercy. We can approach it confidently and receive mercy and find the grace that we need to help us when we hit those moments when we need it more than anything. And every one of us needs God's mercy. And every one of us needs his grace. Remind, and we need to be reminded 
So let us come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. Let us approach the throne. Let's not shy away from it and ignore it anymore. Let's, let's not pretend we're not good enough or we're not capable or I don't know how to, you know, King James prayers, I don't know how to do that, Brandon. I don't know, I'm not sure how to do any of those things. That you can approach the throne with confidence. So you can bring your financial struggles, you can bring those to the throne with confidence. You can bring your emotional pain to the throne with confidence, knowing that he's been there and knowing that he's covered you. You, you. you can bring this physical pain that you're dealing with, you can bring that to the throne of mercy. You can bring your situation at work to the throne. You can confidently approach the throne with the issues in your marriage and approach the throne. You can bring the fight that you've been having with anxiety for years. You can confidently bring it to the throne. Not in shame, because he's been there. He's experienced it. You don't have to approach the throne hiding. You can approach it boldly with confidence. The Lord Jesus has already been there on your behalf.